If you'd like to open your Bibles, please, at the book of Philemon. Uh, the picture isn't very good. I'm sorry. It's the only picture we're going to have, so don't worry about it. It's a massive high railway bridge with an old steam train going across it and this girl uh, walking across on her hands and knees. Can you just make it out at all? This story happened three months before my grandmother was born. The year was 1881. It was Iowa in the States, and the girl is Kate Shelley. She is 15 years old when this happened, and there has been a horrendous thunderstorm, and the, the river, the uh, Des Moines River here, um, has flooded, and it has caused the structure of the bridge to collapse, so half the bridge has fallen into the river, and the uh, passenger train is on its way. So what is she going to do? She realizes the only thing she can do is to walk across that bridge, although it's very rickety now, and it's in the storm, and it's at night time, to stop the passenger train. But if the passenger train comes before she gets across, she's had it. So this 15-year-old girl, she gets up on the railway bridge and she starts making her way across. As she's about halfway to the end, her lamp blows out. She now has to crawl about 200 feet above the river, on these flats, in the dark, in the storm, as the bridge is uh, swaying and in danger of collapsing, and she has to get there before the train arrives. And she succeeds. And if you go there, it's to um, Honey Creek there uh, on the uh, Des Moines River, that you can buy her biography, there's pictures of her, there's the history, because she was so courageous in doing what was right. I mean, I would have hated to have walked across the, that height <laughs> any time, let alone do what she did. And you see, every emotion in her body must have been saying, don't do it, <laughs> go home. And yet she was determined that although every emotion was saying, don't do it, her head knew that it was the right thing to do. And here, as Paul writes to Philemon, in these verses, 12 to 14, Paul is telling Philemon that he's going to do what's right. We know, don't we, that parents mustn't be ruled by their feelings. So when your child who you love dearly, that you would happily, well, not necessarily happily, but willingly sacrifice your life for, says that uh, he wants some sweets, and it's only 10 minutes before tea time, you know that although emotionally you want to give them what they want, mentally you have to do what's right and say no. And when they start crying, they say no. And because you're a good parent, when you give them their meal, you make sure you have some greens, some vegetables on the plate. Because you know you mustn't be led by emotions. You've got to do what's right. And those of you who are saving for your pension fund, you know that when a guy says that he's got this Lamborghini and he's willing to sell it to you cheap, and you think, yes, I can plunder all my pension savings 
and I can drive around in a Lamborghini, you know that your emotions are wrong and you have to be guided by your head. You have to do what's right. So there you are studying to be a doctor. It's hard work. It's exhausting. The hours are long. The textbooks are heavy. The pressures are immense. And you see an advert for a, a, a drug company wants a rep and they're going to give you a car and they're going to give you a wage. And immediately you'll have some money and you won't have the pressures. And it's so tempting to do what is emotionally appealing rather than what you know is the good you should be doing. Why do people vote for disastrous politicians? Because the disastrous politicians offer them what emotionally feels good, but is not really good. Well, Paul here in Philemon is tempted to keep Onesimus. Onesimus has run away, robbed his master, run away, met Paul, been converted. Now he's a real help to Paul. And Paul is tempted to keep Onesimus. He loves him. Look how much he loves him. He says, I'm sending him who is my very heart. That's emphasized, isn't it, how much he loves him. Back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me. Next verse. But I did not want to do anything without your consent. He, he's saying how much he loves um, Onesimus. He would have liked, that's his emotions, different word in verse 14, but I did not want. He says, in my head, I knew I should prefer to do something different. He's saying he's got to do what's right, not what he would have liked to have done emotionally. And I mean, this little paragraph here, it reveals the apostle's affection. You can see his affection for Onesimus. I'm sending him who's very much my very heart back to you. Shows his love for himself. I would like to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the, poor, for the gospel. And also it shows his love for Philemon. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. I think the version you've got says spontaneous, but it is the word voluntary, willingly. That's what it's talking about. We often have conflicting emotions, don't I? You will know, you'll look at your diary, and there's something at work that is really important. There's something at church which is really important. And there's something at home that is really important. And you can't do two of them, let alone all three. And emotionally, you want to do them all. And you have to make a choice. And emotions tend to cloud the issue. Because if you, if you choose your family, your boss will get cross with you. Uh, if you turn to church, then your boss and maybe the family will get cross with you. You know, you feel, ha! Ah. Emotions get in the way, don't they? And we need to be able to... Think clearly. Know what our emotions are saying and know what is the right thing to do. We need to be able to make the tough decisions. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Do you realize that? The fruit of the Spirit is not spirit control. It's self-control. 
The fruit of the Spirit is not when you fall into the river and you are washed along in the tide and you just can't do anything but be taken along. No. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Where you can cross the river safely. You know, our society says, if it feels so good, how can it possibly be wrong? And so people take drugs, don't they? Why? Because it feels so good. They drop out because it feels so easy, feels so nice. And as a Christian church, we must not be led by our emotions. We must be led by the truth. We must do what is right. So I've got three points. The first point is this, based, based upon verse 12. Some things aren't good. Avoid them. My next point on verse 13 is going to say some things feel good, so test them. And my third point, based on verse 14, is some things are good, so do them. And the interesting thing is that each of these points is difficult. Oh, we've, we've got them all so quick. Hey, we better shoot back a bit. <laughs> or else I'm going to finish my sermon in two minutes. Right, some things aren't good. Avoid them. Now you say, where does it say that in verse 12? Verse 12 says, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. Where does that say some things aren't good? Avoid them. Well, if you read any commentary on these verses, every major commentator says it's interesting what Paul says because of what he doesn't say. If Paul wanted Philemon to release Onesimus and send him back to Paul to help Paul in his imprisonment, then it's obvious what Paul should write to Philemon. Paul should write to Philemon and say, Onesimus, Onesimus is coming back of his own free will. And he's really sorry for everything he's done. And I really want you to forgive him. That would be the obvious thing to say, wouldn't it? That would be the obvious thing to say. But Paul doesn't say it for the simple reason that it would be wrong for him to say that. For in those days, Onesimus was a runaway slave and therefore he had no freedom to choose to go back of his own will. He was under the law of the land and if Paul didn't send Onesimus back, then Paul was a criminal too. And the law may seem to be unfair, but that was the law of the land and as Christians we've got to obey the law of the land as much as we possibly can. And so Paul says, I am sending him back. I'm doing the right thing. It's not that he's going back of his own free will. He might be, but that's irrelevant. The important thing is that Paul is doing the right thing however costly it might be and then again Paul doesn't say oh he's so sorry for what he's done you know don't you that if some nasty little kid breaks into your house and pulls up all your flowers and all your vegetables and his mum comes to see you and says, oh, little Johnny's so sorry. You couldn't care two hoots what the mother says. Unless little Johnny comes and tells you, you know little Johnny's not sorry, don't you? We can't apologize for other people. We can't repent for other people. And 
Paul knows that Onesimus has to go back to Philemon and say to Philemon, look, I am really sorry. Paul can't do his job for him. You know, as parents, we can sometimes try and be overprotective to our kids. And as in the church, we can try to make excuses for everything, everybody. But actually, we have to take responsibility for our own lives. And Paul doesn't say, Onesimus is sorry. It's Onesimus who has to do that himself. It wouldn't be good for Paul to twist things and say, oh, he's coming back freely and he's really sorry. And it is interesting that he doesn't say, I would like you to forgive him. Why doesn't Paul say, I want you to forgive him? And the answer is, because when you understand forgiveness biblically, forgiveness is such a big thing that you can only forgive someone when they repent. You can overlook a fault. You can overlook a fault. Oh, forget it. You know, someone <laughs> treads on your toe. Someone drops a cup at home. You know, so someone said something nasty to you. And you, you can just overlook it, can't you? You can just overlook it. That, that, that's not really forgiveness. That, that's just ignoring it. That's just forgetting it. That's just overlooking it. Forgiveness is when there is something that you can't overlook. Something really serious has happened. Something that is, is breaking your relationship with that person. Destroying that person's life. Destroying other people's. Wrecking things. Ruining things. And you can't just, just forgive them. They have to repent. So that then the relationship can be reconciled. Now this doesn't sound Christian, does it? You would think the Christian thing is to do is just to forgive everybody. You know, that's what God does, isn't it? Doesn't God just forgive everybody? Or do people have to repent? Aren't we to forgive as God forgave us? Yes. And what God does is he loves us so much that he has provided forgiveness for us. He has paid it so that it can be received as a free gift. But it is only given to you when you repent. That's true, isn't it? Because actually, unless there is repentance there, the forgiveness given doesn't restore the relationship because the person doesn't want the relationship. So there's David and there's Goliath. <laughs> and David runs up to Goliath. He's got his uh, sling and he shoots the stone and it hits Goliath on the head and Goliath falls back, crash on the ground. The ground reverberates and David runs up to them and he grabs Goliath's sword and he says, oh, Goliath, we love you. We really do. And we want you to know that we forgive you. So have a nice day. Is that what he says? Isn't that the Christian thing to do? No, he gets his head and he chops it off because this man was destroying the people of God. And you see, there can only be forgiveness where there is repentance. And therefore, Paul can't say to Philemon, I want you to forgive Onesimus. He can say to Onesimus, look, you need to repent and you need to ask forgiveness. 
And then it's up to Philemon to forgive. Does that make sense to you? But not to have a superficial, sentimental Christianity that we're just nice to, you know, the Goliaths of this world. You know, the Canaanites come to destroy us. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's, that, that's not Christianity. We must be willing to forgive. Willing to forgive. It's as if, let's think of a horrible illustration, all right? A drunk driver has plowed into your family and killed half of them and crippled the other half. What do you do? Well, it's incredibly difficult. But you get down on your knees before the cross of Calvary. And you realize that sin is a horrible thing. And sin destroys lives. You realize what it did to the Son of God, to the family of God. And you get down on your knees and you thank God that God has forgiven you. And you thank God that God has provided forgiveness for this person. And you pray that God's love and grace for that person might flow through you. And you struggle and you pray till you get to the point where you are willing to give forgiveness to that person. But until that person actually comes and repents, you don't give them the forgiveness. Does that make sense to you? That is not trivializing the sin. That is not trivializing forgiveness. That is showing that forgiveness is more than overlooking a fault. Forgiveness is beginning to rebuild the relationship. And that can only be done where, number one, you are willing to forgive and they are repentant. So Paul doesn't say, oh, just forgive him. Let's forget about it all. There's got to be repentance. Secondly, right, let's move on. Verse 13. If that was an argument from silence, it's much clearer here in verse 13. Some things only feel good. Test them. Paul says, I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. The number of times we've had assistant ministers working with us, they've been so good, and I would just love to keep them, but we have to send them out to the wider church. There are times we have to discipline our children. It would be lovely to, uh, you know, just keep them happy, and, but no, we've got to do what doesn't feel good sometimes. And sometimes what we want, even for the church, isn't what God wants, so we have to test everything and hold fast to the good you see this seemed good paul says i would have liked to have to keep him with me the company for me so that he could take your place in helping me doing what philemon would do if he were here while i am in chains for the gospel i'm suffering persecution for the gospel wouldn't it be lovely to have some help it seemed so good but it isn't good you see, we have to test everything. And I can't emphasize this enough. Test everything. Don't react emotionally. You know we talk about having a gut reaction, don't we? Test everything. Frank Boram was a minister in Australia. 
he was actually came from um, Brighton Way, but he was a minister in Australia. He hadn't been there long, and his young wife and he were going, this is in about uh, 1900, I suppose, and they were going to visit uh, a member of the congregation, and they had to take their uh, horse and trap, and they had to drive over the uh, hills, the countryside, to get to this person's house. And they got lost, and they found a woodcutter, great big man, huge man, and he was uh, chopping for posts. So he was, had a, a log this thick, and he was chopping it down to make sticks. So he was a big guy, and they stopped, and they asked him the way to this church member's house. And the woodcutter, name of Alan Donovan, refused to even acknowledge their presence. They spoke to him. He wouldn't even look at them. He knew they were there. He wasn't deaf. He just would not talk to them, totally ignored them. So in the end, they went on and they spoke to the people when they finally found them about this woodcutter. And they found the story that Alan Donovan had been engaged to the prettiest girl in the county, Mary Chambers. And on the day before their wedding, she went off and never came back. One month later, he read in the Sydney newspaper that Mary Chambers had married a local family. Well, he was so heartbroken. He was so angry. He was so hostile that he moved away from the area and he vowed he would never acknowledge another woman as long as he lived. So if the shop had a woman behind the counter, he wouldn't shop in it. He just would ignore them completely. He wouldn't have anything to do with them. So Frank Bourne thought he ought to do some investigating. So he wrote to a friend of his in Sydney. And they found the Sydney uh, newspaper, uh, Sydney Herald, and they found that the Mary Chambers who married the farmer was not Alan Donovan's Mary Chambers at all. And then they found that about 10 years after the wedding should have taken place, the Western advertiser had the tragic story of a girl the day before her wedding who went to post a letter and on the way back took a shortcut, slipped, fell down the quarry, and her body wasn't discovered for 10 years. When Frank Borum showed these newspapers to Alan Donovan, Alan Donovan shook. It was the second most devastating day of his life. And he realized that for 15 years, he had been bitter, hostile, angry, destroying his life because he just had a gut reaction. He didn't test everything. So Paul says, test everything. Hold fast to that which is good. But how do we test things? Well, in Acts chapter 15, verse 28, we find that the early church tested them by, it says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. This is how we test things. It has to feel good to the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means it has to agree with the Bible, the inspired word of the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit convicts us, doesn't he? 
the Holy Spirit convinces the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. It, we, we, we look for the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, the leading and prompting work of the Holy Spirit. It seems good to the Holy Spirit, but that isn't enough. You would have thought, oh, well, if it seems good to the Holy Spirit, that's obviously enough, let's do it. No. It has to seem good to the Holy Spirit and it must seem good to us. Why? If it not it enough just to seem good to the Holy Spirit? No. Because sometimes we can misinterpret. And secondly, we need confirmation. So they said it didn't seem good to the Holy Spirit and to me, but it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. How do we test things? We test things if it seems good to the Holy Spirit. It's in the will of the Spirit, and it seems good to us. We have leaders, we have uh, accountability partners, we have people who we test things with. And when it seems good to the Spirit and to us, <laughs> then we can go pretty much sure that these are good things. They not just feel good, they are good. But here's the question, what happens... If, if what you feel feels good to the Holy Spirit, but not to us. If something seems good to the Holy Spirit, but not to us. Do you mean you've got to not do what the Holy Spirit does because of others? Yes. Yes. Because one of the ways the Holy Spirit tells you to test things is by wise counselors. Because we're not only spirit creatures, we're spirit and mind. We've got to worship God with our spirit and with our mind. So when Stuart Briscoe was doing a great work amongst the young people up in Manchester, he had about a thousand young people every week, and he was doing a great work. So he went, he thought the Lord was calling him to become a minister. And so he decided to um, go and ask five men whose uh, wisdom he uh, valued if they thought he should be, go full-time into the ministry. Because he was convinced that God was calling him to the ministry. So he asked these five people. And do you know what they said? Every one of them said no. So he realized that... Why had he asked them if he wasn't willing to take their advice? So he humbled himself. Took their advice. Two years later, he went back and asked the five men the same question. And this time, they all, without exception, said yes. Now was the time. You see, we can know God's direction and be very confused about the timing. And therefore, we have to check that it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. That's what Paul is doing here. He is asking Philemon. And if Philemon thinks, yes, I'm going to forgive Onesimus. Yes, I'll send him back. Well, it confirms it all. This is God's will. It's great. But we don't presume. We don't run ahead. Some things only feel good. So we test them. And finally, verse 14, some things are good. And so we do them. And this is, can be the hardest of all. It can be hard to avoid some things, it can be very hard to test them, but sometimes it's most difficult to do them. For Paul, it means giving up Onesimus. Onesimus has been helping him. That means providing meals for him, basically. 
looking after him while he's in prison, helping him move the chain so he can move position in comfort, having someone to pray with, encouraging each other in their witness. It's been great to have Onesimus. So for Paul to send Onesimus back is really costly for Paul. It's really costly for Onesimus. <laughs> Onesimus has to walk back to his master who he's robbed, who the whole society says have him branded, have him beaten to the point of death, work him in the mines. It's pretty tough what Onesimus had to do. And it was pretty tough what Philemon had to do as well. Because Philemon, to forgive his slave, he would lose face with all the other slaves. He would lose face with all the other slave masters. If you had treated your slave like that, you know, we're not going to treat our slaves like that. It was really costly, really difficult. Last week, just last week, I heard of a couple. He's a junior doctor. He wants to marry this Christian girl in the church. He's asked her parents for permission to marry their daughter. And the parents said no. What do you do? What do you do? It can be really hard sometimes. Well, that's a big pastoral problem. It will take some unraveling. But sometimes it's not, you don't do that which merely feels good. You've got to do that which is good. So Kate Shelley, on her hands and knees, crawled across that rickety bridge in the storm, in the night to save the passengers. It was hard work, wasn't it? It was costly, but she was going to do what was the right thing. But that was nothing compared to the Lord of glory who crossed the universe to come to us. Not to crawl across a bridge, but to be the bridge by being crucified and being made sin and enduring the wrath of uh, God, the curse of the law and all the hatred of men and the hostility of hell. And he paid it all. Did it feel good? No, it felt so bad. He prayed, my God, my God, if it's possible, take this away from me. But he wasn't going to be led by his feelings. He was going to do what was the good, what was the right thing to do. And for you and me, tough, isn't it? But you know what Psalm 110 verse 3 says? It says, your troops will be willing on your day of battle. The amazing thing is that when God's Spirit works in our lives, we don't have to be forced to do what is right. We are willing to do it. And that's what Paul says to uh, Philemon. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. You'd be willing. And that leaves us here today, doesn't it? What are we going to do with the rest of our lives? Are we going to avoid the good? Are we going to do what just feels good? Or are we going to say, for me, I'm going to walk in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ, who did good, whatever the cost.